Good afternoon to all of you. As I begin today, I need to make a statement to all of you. Because I come from the future. I come from the future to share a message for all of you here today. I have a message that I received uh, as I visited the future. I encountered somebody who had uh, been resurrected to be a spirit being. And they were kind enough to share a brief summary of how they felt at that very moment when they were changed to spirit. So I'd like to share it with you here as we begin the message today. <clears throat> I felt lighter than air. I felt a power beyond anything that I was ever able to imagine when I was a human. The peace of mind that I felt, the clarity and the purity of my thoughts, and my desire to love and to help other people was beyond anything I ever imagined. So that is a possible account. Perhaps in the future you'll be able to write, hopefully we'll all be able to write or share what it feels like to be made fully spirit, to be born of the spirit. Now that was my perhaps feeble attempt at it. Others have made far more lasting comments on this subject. If you would, let's turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll read a familiar set of verses written down by the Apostle Paul, inspired, of course, by God and Jesus Christ. But he talks about this idea as well, this being born of the Spirit. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Dropping down to verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we all sh shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, incorruptible, we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. And we know that he goes on to say that at that point, death will be swallowed up in victory. This is the future, this being born of the Spirit, the way that Paul described it. But of course, he didn't make this up. He got this from his teacher, who was Jesus Christ. If you would, please turn to the book of John, <clears throat> chapter 3. Christ spoke about this subject, uh, not quite at the same length, and in a different way, and he spoke about it to the Pharisee, Nicodemus. John, chapter 3, and verse 3, we read, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 4, Nicodemus starts thinking about this, of course. And he says, well, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? This was a concept probably he had never thought about. Verse 5, Christ answers, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Verse 8, we'll skip verse 7. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who was born of the Spirit. So Christ gives us this beautiful picture. I've always thought this is when I was a younger person, the first few times I read this in particular, it struck me like, well, that's really neat. It's like the wind. I mean, you, you can feel the impact of it, but you can't really see where it came from. You can't see where it's going. That's what it will be like to be born of the Spirit. Another way of describing part of what Christ said is if you're born of the Spirit, you're invisible. Now, as a young man, I remember back in the 70s, there was a short-lived TV show called The Invisible Man. Didn't last very long, but I remember being fascinated by the idea of being invisible. Uh, it was based on H.G. Wells' story, which apparently is a bit darker. I've never actually read that story. But the idea of being invisible appeals to many of us. And so this idea around the spirit, or this fact around the spirit, is that it is, has invisible characteristic. Of course, we're not yet born of the spirit, so we're not fully, we're not invisible, but still it is something that we have to look forward to. Now, the fact that it is invisible and that we actually have it in us, those of us who are baptized, we know at baptism you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and it's invisible. As I look out here today, I see lots of people, uh, many of whom, of course, are baptized, but I don't see any Holy Spirit, at least in a physical, tangible way. And God's word tells us it's there. And so as human beings, we have challenges, one of which is we tend to struggle with the problem of taking things for granted. Now, we can do that with things that are physical. Our spouse, our children, our friends, the blessings of our job, you name it, we can take these things for granted. And those are physical, tangible things that we can see and touch. Well, what about something invisible that we can't even see? It seems to me that it stands to reason that we may have even, an even bigger challenge not taking that for granted because we can't see it. Now, I know that we can experience it in a different way, and we'll talk about some of those ways today, but perhaps that's food for thought, something that can be a benefit to us all. So as we consider that idea, let's make sure that we don't allow the following proverb become reality in our life, out of sight and out of mind. The Holy Spirit cannot be seen. Let's not let it be out of sight and out of mind in our Christian lives. So with that as a bit of a backdrop, I'm going to review some of what God has to say about the Holy Spirit. I did a bit of a study as I prepared this, and I was uh, amazed in one sense about how much the Bible has to say about the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so we will begin today with two important things to remember when you think about God's Holy Spirit. First one's obvious, we know it, but it's good to think about it a bit more, and that is this. It is a gift. We did nothing to earn it. It was a gift. God gave freely of himself. It is, of course, his power, his essence, his mind, his character, the great God of the universe, which we just sang about in that uh, last of the three songs, well, actually all of the songs, uh, is the one who's given of himself and put it in us when we are baptized. Let's read about that in a, a known, well-known scripture, Acts chapter 2, 
verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So as we know, we have to reverse our direction of life, turn back to God. We have to have those sins blotted out. And then at that point in time, at baptism, we can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This scripture is uh, somewhat duplicated in Acts chapter 10, where something similar happened. If you would turn to Acts chapter 10, and verse 44. Acts 10, verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And of those of the circumcision, in other words, the Jewish believers, who believed, they were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. So again, some, this echoes what happened in Acts chapter two. But again, what's interesting I think to me, and maybe something we don't think a lot about today, the early church certainly thought in terms, that Paul was inspired, uh, inspired to write in terms of, this was a gift. So let's now talk a little bit about gifts Let's talk about people who give gifts. Let's talk about gifts that we like. And let's talk about being a giver and what perspective that also provides us. So I want you to think about, for a moment, a gift that you really like. It could be a gift that someone bought for you. It could be a gift you bought for yourself, something you really like. I'll give you two really simple examples. Uh, I have a frother. Yeah, it's really exciting, isn't it? I have a frother that frosts up my milk and I put it on my chai tea when I drink it and it makes me happy, right? But if you think about it really, I use it every single day. So think about something that you use every single day. Another thing that came to mind, I have a mountain bike, I like to ride my bike, and I usually do it once, twice, three times a week, but it makes me happy. I get out outside, I get to exercise, I like it. What gifts, think to yourself, do you really like you use them all the time and really kind of make your day go a little better. With that done, let us ask a few questions about gifts. What is it that you like about it? Would you be upset if it was damaged? Do you take good care of it? How often do you use it? Do you know a lot about how it even works? If it is a gift that someone gave you, does it mean even more than if you bought it for yourself? I know that's a lot of questions. I don't expect you to remember every one of them, but the idea hopefully is to spark a bit of thought about gifts and more importantly, God's gift. And let's turn to that. Let's turn and ask those questions of God's spirit. What is it that you like about the Holy Spirit? Would you be upset if it was damaged or if it was diminished in your life? Do you take really good care of it? How often do you use it? Do you know a lot about how it works? Since it is a gift, the character and the mind, the creator of the universe, does that change your view of it? Let's move then to the perspective. That's, that's kind of thinking about the perspective of when you receive a gift and how you value it and what it means to you and how you use it. Let's then think about the perspective of you as a gift giver. We all give gifts. Sometimes we do a good job of giving gifts and picking them out. Sometimes we don't. We joke and say, truthfully, sometimes some people are impossible to buy gifts for. But when you do invest time in picking out a gift, and when you really think, you know, I think I really nailed this one. I know this person likes 
whatever, ABC, really likes this, this is something unique, this is something a little rare, I'm going to give it to my spouse or my friend. Now you're really invested in it. And when you give that gift to them, whether it's handing it to them in person or dropping it off or whatever it is that you do, you have an interest in how they receive that gift. Are they like, oh, wow, I love this. Now, when that happens, you're like, ha, ah, right, I got it, I got it, right? But if they don't react that way, then your little, the air kind of comes out of your balloon, right? You're like, well, I've spent all that time. I thought you were going to love it, and, and, you know, so we tend to react that way. So the question simply then is this. As God looks down from heaven and looks at all of us and the gift of the Holy Spirit, what sort of reaction is he seeing from us in the way that we look at this gift, this incredible gift of the Holy Spirit? Is he happy with our perception of it, our appreciation of it? So that's the first thing to think about or something to remember as we consider the Holy Spirit. A second thing is this. The Holy Spirit that we have is a down payment. We've already talked about being born of the Spirit. We're not there yet, but we do have a down payment. Now, this is not something that's a unique idea. We all go through this process uh, with the feast and making accommodations. But before I go to that particular idea, I want to tie it with something else that many of us have experienced. I want to do a quick survey, if you would, wouldn't mind raising your hands. For those of you who are baptized, if you wouldn't mind raising your hand, how many of you in this room have been baptized one year or less, if you don't mind raising your hand? Anyone one year or less? Okay, thank you. What about five years to one year? One year to five years, how many have been baptized in that period of time? Okay, larger number. How about five to 20? We'll speed this up. How many have been baptized five to 20 years? 20 to 30? 30 to 40? I've been baptized 39 years ago, and if you want to blame someone, Mr. Salyer's here today, so it's nice to see him, joking aside. Uh, and then how about 40 to 50? Anybody 40 to 50? Wow, we've got several. 50 to 60, anybody? Wow, look at that. 50 to 60, 60 to 70. Wow, so we have some very long-time members, long-time baptized members, of the church, and that's fantastic to see. But I want you to think about that in terms of the idea of the down payment of the Holy Spirit, which we were all given at baptism. And less than, as we think about that, in the period of time that has elapsed, whether it's a week or whether it's 60 plus years since God gave us that down payment, and think about that then with something we're more familiar with it, when we make a, a feast accommodation and we have to put down a down payment. Now that's something that's going to happen weeks or months in the future. And I don't know about you, but I suspect we're all human and maybe think this way, like, oh, I'm gonna put down 50% of my feast money on this, this place and pick a spot. That's still three months away or five months away. I mean, there's a little bit of trepidation that can come as you think about it. It's like, well, I hope I, you know, especially in COVID times, is this gonna happen? Am I gonna lose this? What's the cancellation policy? But God, of course, as we just saw, has made those down payments for many of us years and years and years ago. And he is faithful and he believes in us. And I think we should look at that as a tremendous source of encouragement that he's willing to make that investment in time, years and weeks and months and all those past. He's still there and he's, he's made that commitment to us. So maybe compare those two things. Uh, the, the trepidation and that we feel when we make a uh, down payment versus what 
God has done with us. Let's take a look at a couple of scriptures then that talk about this down payment. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. From what I could tell, this particular word, which actually is not Greek, it's actually of Hebrew origin. Uh, let's read the verse first before I get it too far ahead of myself. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 22. Who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The word translated guarantee is from the Hebrew, Arabon. And it means a down payment, an earnest, but it also means, and this was, I think, one of the more striking things I found. It can mean, it can mean a large payment. And I, I did a bit more study, and I found a historical document that indicated that in, in these times in the culture, and again, I'm certainly not an expert on this, but that the idea of small down payments, like we're familiar with the concept of a no money down, right? We hear that all the time in marketing pitches. But that wasn't the way things were done in those days. You had to put something considerable down. And certainly here we find in this case that that is part of the meaning. A large payment, a part of the payment, I should say, is, is, is what is included in that, in that meaning of guarantee. That's what God has done, and he's willing to let time pass until he gets that, to that ultimate fulfillment. And if you think about it, I just mentioned about the idea of feast accommodation. God is looking at us because he wants to dwell in us, another type of accommodation. He wants to come be in us fully, and that is part of his plan. So there are some similarities between the two. Uh, Paul also mentions this in 2 Corinthians 5, 5. We don't have to turn there. He also mentions it again in Ephesians. So three times this word Arabon, again of Hebrew origin, is used to, and clearly because the church was young. This was a very important principle that Paul wanted to get across. So as I wrap up that uh, section, I just encourage us all to think about the quality of what God has given us, the quantity of what he has given, and his willingness to give it to us years in advance of its ultimate fulfillment. With that said, we're going to switch gears a little bit. So besides things to think about and remember, I want to share four ways that God wants us to interact with his Holy Spirit. The first one is, Paul tells us that we need to be filled with it. Now this concept has kind of fascinated me because as you read the pages of the New Testament, you'll see it talked about a lot. And so-and-so was filled with the Spirit. So I've always thought, what does that mean? Or am I filled with the Spirit? Are the people in the church filled with the Spirit? What's, you know, it's not something we necessarily say in conversation to one another. If you would please turn to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. Paul talks about this and he says the following. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In verse 18, he says, And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, commentaries will say that what they believe Paul is doing here is he's speaking to an issue that was commonplace in that period of time. Uh, there were bacchanalian I said that right, festivals in which at the time where people would just drink and drink and drink till they were completely intoxicated and they would literally run around the cities and the fields singing and uh, yelling and this was taken to be a sign of you know, their allegiance to their particular God. And so the idea, the commentators think, is that Paul is trying to paint a contrast for Christians. Rather than being filled with wine and running around, and doing those things, he says, but be filled with the Spirit. And if we, if we continue the thought, verse 19, he says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. 
And verse 20, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll stop there, but he's making that contrast, and I think it brings up something to us that maybe we're not particularly used to. It's not part of our culture. I don't think God, uh, God wants us to go around saying, hello, Bill, and then quote a, uh, one of David's psalms to him. I don't think that's what he's saying. But I do think he is saying we should be, these thoughts, these psalms, these spiritual uh, words of God should be in our hearts and in our minds, and they should certainly be at least informing what we say and what we talk about. And we should have, because of the joy that God gives us, we should have a melody in our heart, if you will. And, and we should be happy and we should be filled with that. So I think that's probably what he's trying to get across here. So the first point in the way we, in the way we can interact is to be filled with the Spirit. And in the Greek, it's fairly straightforward in terms of what it means. It means to be replete, to be complete. It gives an example of cramming something full, or if there's a hollow in the ground, filling that hollow completely up. So we can ask ourselves, how full of the Spirit are we? Here's a short list of those the Bible, at least the New Testament, talks about who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, Zechariah, Elizabeth, the 12 apostles, the seven deacons chosen to serve the church, Peter, Paul, Barnabas, Stephen. So as we close this particular point, we should ask ourselves, do we want to be filled with the Spirit, or are we maybe a little afraid of it? Are we too cool for school? I'll be honest, when I was younger, I'm like, oh, filled with the Spirit, what does that mean? I don't want to be like odd or weird, but of course that's not true with God's Spirit. It's being godly. But we should ask ourselves, we should strive to be that way. Secondly, second point, we should let it lead us. If you would turn to the book of Matthew chapter 4. Just one verse here, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Very simple, straightforward. The Greek word is anago, anago, something like that. It simply means what you think it means, to lead up, to bring up. But there is the idea of some force uh, uh, being involved here, some power being involved here. So it's worthwhile to ask the question, do we feel led by the Spirit? We probably can all look at some example in our lives where we were around someone. That guy, is a, that gal is a leader. When they say something, they said, I'm willing to follow that person somewhere. Do we feel that uh, Spirit leading us? If you would turn to the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 14. Romans 8, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Or if you want to put in daughters, I think that's fine. Uh, that's tremendously important. We all want to be in God's family. So it's clearly saying we need to be led by the Spirit of God in order to be one of his sons. Number three, you need to walk in the Spirit. We would turn to Galatians chapter 5, verse 25. And I confess I grabbed something here. I'm not sure which translation I got it from, but it, so it might read a little bit differently from what you have in front of you. Galatians 5, 25. Since we live by the Spirit, let us walk in step with the Spirit. The Greek word there is stoichio, stoichio. And it's interesting, it means to walk in a row or a line in strict accordance to a particular pace or a cadence. So we can ask ourselves, are we walking according to a cadence? 
Are we walking in a line? We can think, of course, of maybe a military parade or a marching band and how precisely they can match their movements and walk together in that cadence, in that rhythm. Um, I think it's a really interesting point and a word that's used here. Uh, there are other words that Paul uses, but this particular word I found quite interesting. And as I was looking at this particular word, I happened to see an article yesterday that was in the Wall Street Journal on a different subject, but the title is what caught my eye. It said, why, and this is a question for the children, do we have any children? And those of us who are not children, still a question, why do ducks get in a row when they swim behind the mother duck? Why do they do that? Well, I don't see too many young children here today, but if you think you know the answer, you can raise your hand, but don't say anything out loud. We don't want to get you in trouble with your parents. But if you think you know the answer, you might, or you probably do. The answer is, in simple words, to swim better, faster, more easily, because apparently research shows that the wake created by the mother is a bit of a triangle like this. But as the wake is created, created by the mother in the front, there are horizontal waves running this way, well, horizontally, perpendicular to the beginning of the wake. And so actually, they believe that the ducklings are actually kind of like surfing. They are surfing behind her, and she, of course, is reducing the resistance as they swim, and so they can swim, according to the author of this article, uh, they can swim much more easily, particularly as they're young and just learning to develop the strength in their bodies. So I thought that was interesting in the fact that, again, they are in a row. They are precisely, as the article mentions, they're very precisely positioned. So another way of looking at the spirit and asking ourselves, are we aligned? We're a group. Ducks are a group. Are we walking in line with that spirit and with each other? The fourth point, use it to put to death the deeds of the body. If you would turn to the book of Romans, chapter 8, some have called the uh, chapter 8 of Romans the Holy Spirit chapter. has much to say about the Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit. Romans 8, verse 13. We'll actually start in verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In verse 14, which we read earlier, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And I'll read a couple more verses. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, or I think that could be rendered sonship, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. This is the familial relationship that God has blessed us with and what he is developing here below. Verse 16, the spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, we have a life to live that's challenging at times, but we do this so that we may be glorified together with him. Go back to verse 13 for a moment. If by the Spirit you put to death. Now we're sitting here in a comfortable uh, auditorium here today, nice cushy seats. Hopefully everyone's pretty comfortable, that is. But we are, in fact, in a life and death struggle. Sometimes it's hard to get it through my brain. Maybe it is hard for you as well. We have to put something to death. It's not a game. But the good news is, 
through the God's Holy Spirit, and we know that God speaks of it in Ephesians also as the sword of the Spirit. We have a weapon. It is this weapon we need to use to put to death the deeds of the body so that we can live. So in conclusion, and this is where I'll share the title. I don't see the title. Uh, what is it? I don't want to collect title collector here today, but I know she's probably listening. So the title, because I have to give one, God's Holy Spirit, Tomorrow and Today. We, of course, started with the tomorrow version and spent most of the time about the today version. So as we consider this, I would like to just ask you to think about the idea of the Holy Spirit tomorrow. And I will rehearse briefly five words that Paul shared with us. Incorruptible, immortal, glorious, powerful, spiritual. You know, for those of us who are longtime members, you will remember the words of Mr. Armstrong, the wonderful world tomorrow, what it will be like. I can't do justice to it. My apologies. But that is the glorious, incredible future that God has set before us tomorrow. But we live in the today as we know. So let's remember the things we talked about, which was remembering uh, that we have a great and wonderful gift, that significant down payment has been made, and that we are to be filled with the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, and use it, use that sword of the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body.